And when all said and done, in my mind, that 2K, when I do it the way I really want to do it, one that I'm really satisfied with, one that I really know I left it all out there, it's as hard as an Ironman. No question to me. You never know how strong you are until being strong is your only option. It's really with one end goal in mind of a better cycling experience. There's a huge overlap. We're covering all these aspects of cycling. It's not just about the high-level cyclists. It's not just about the health club. Now it's about a bike, a power meter, technology, data. It's about cycling, no matter where you do it and how you do it. That's all I got. (laughs) Welcome to Bridge the Gap, presented by Stages Cycling. I'm Bryce Hansen, and on this show, we talk about all things cycling, no matter how or where you do it. Our guest today is one of our own master educators with Stages Cycling University from Southern California. She holds a master's in exercise physiology and over 25 years of putting that expertise to practice. She's competed in Ironmans in some of the most beautiful places in the country and holds multiple Masters World Championships on the track, breaking a world record and then breaking her own world record. She's a USAC Level 2 coach, author, and presenter. Her name is Lenita Anthony. We talk about racing and how that affects the way she teaches indoors. Lenita helps us bust a couple common myths about riding indoors and tells us about a really cool foundation close to her heart and how you can get involved too. Hi, Lenita. Thanks for joining me on the show. Hi, Bryce. Thank you for having me. You're a Stages Master Educator, so we know how amazing you are in front of an indoor class, (laughs) but you also have a history in triathlon and high accomplishments on the track. How did you get started in triathlons? I was a triathlete, gosh, back when the sport was born. That tells you a little bit about how old I am. Um, But yeah, literally, I I was a swimmer in college. And I was going to school up in um, San Luis Obispo, so enjoying running on a lot of the trails out there. It's a really outdoor-oriented community, as you know, and, and commuting on my bike to and from class. Um, when I heard about this thing that people were doing called triathlon, and I thought, sounds like something I should do. I run, bike, and swim anyway, so let me give this a go. And, uh, and the first one I did was in a pool, actually, on campus there. I'll never forget the lanes were so crowded. You couldn't even swim at one lap without getting knocked, your goggles knocked off <laughs> 10 times. But I had a lot of fun with that. And um, shortly thereafter, I graduated from Cal Poly and moved down to San Diego to attend graduate school in exercise physiology at San Diego State, which at the time had literally one of the leading programs, one of the few programs at that time in the country. And also realized that San Diego was um, really second to Hawaii would be probably what would be considered a birthplace of the sport of triathlon. So kind of kept that up and um, got quite involved in that world um, up to, you know, short distance to Olympic distance to half Ironman to qualifying for Kona and um, racing in Kona a couple times. That's amazing. What an incredible place to be able to compete. I know that Kona is very high on the list of races for a lot of triathletes. So for you to be able to qualify and go do that is amazing. I think so. You know, it really, for me, I know it was, it was always a dream and uh, one that I, I pursued, I think just through the encouragement of, of others and kind of, 
actually a funny story. Most of you probably remember, um, if you've been around a little while, a scene on what used to be the wild world of sports of, of the famous ending of the Ironman triathlon where Julie Moss was crawling to the finish line and Kathleen McCartney. So Julie Moss was a classmate of mine up at Cal Poly. Oh, that's super cool. So when I saw her doing that, I think that really sparked in my mind, just like, wow, that is cool. I got to do that. And so it was a couple of years later that I actually qualified and went a race there. But yeah, I think that inspired a lot of people, even though it looked, uh, pretty painful and uncomfortable. It, it definitely had um, an impact on a lot of us in that day that ah, that's what I got to go do. So I went there really just as a celebration. To me, getting there was what it was all about and telling myself that if I was there, there was no way in the world anything was going to make me not finish it. <laughs> and uh, so I was, it was fun because I was able to just kind of race it as a, as a celebration. And it was a beautiful and really memorable experience. Really enjoyed it. Well, and I think that's something that so many people can relate to, whether it's Kona or, or even just finishing an indoor class, right? They see others, they're inspired, and they kind of want to jump in there and get their feet wet, um, <laughs> pun intended, right? Right. And, you know, see what they're made of. And there's uh, obviously so much of cycling is kind of enduring that pain, but there's also that rewarding feeling of, like I said, seeing what you're made of, seeing, you know, how gritty you are. Right. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Cause I think it works both ways. There, there are those that we look at and, and we are inspired by them and they, they actually drive us to learn more about ourselves as we um, kind of feel just, I think, braver and bolder by having watched them. We will attempt things that perhaps we wouldn't have done without that inspiration. And, and in the process, I, I think there's just so much that we learn about ourselves that we didn't know was there, which is, it's the part I absolutely love about racing, to be really, really honest, is just continuing to kind of, you know, explore those limits, explore what's there and learn. It's, I just love that aspect of racing. And you definitely have proven that. And there's uh, a couple things we'll get on later on how you've kind of seen your limit and then pushed that limit. But I want to talk about how track racing, so you did triathlon. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like that was in tandem of getting your master's in exercise physiology, correct? Yes, correct. In fact, my, uh, my master's thesis was one of the first studies on the elite in the sport. They really hadn't been studied at that point in time. This was the late 1980s, so <laughs> it was brand new. Yeah. You're doing well there. You now have this science background. When did you finally get on the track? Because track racing kind of seems like to be that discipline that doesn't always get a whole lot of attention. Absolutely. Especially in the U.S., I think. Um, I know overseas it's a little different, but yeah. racing on the boards is is more something that a lot of road racers, it's kind of their next thing. Like they want to go try it out, mm -hmm. but they've already been racing road bikes. I don't see a whole lot of people just jumping straight into track racing. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And now having been on the track, I always feel that's such a shame because it is, uh, it's just, it's awesome. I, I mean, I just think it really is another um, way of enjoying your bike, of enjoying racing. And uh, it's very different yet. Some of the same things that we love about riding our bike outside, there's, there, we're experiencing on the track, but maybe everything is just a lot more real. Things are faster things are more critical. There's less time for mistakes. There's less time to mentally go soft, <laughs> you know, um, just so everything is just happens a little quicker there. And, um, I actually love that. But, um, I didn't get into track racing until really quite some time later. I, uh, 
you know, life goes on, did my triathlons, got married, had a full-time job, kids number one, number two, number three, pretty soon training for something like an Ironman is just completely out of the question. But I always kept, you know, kept my hand in it, whether it was doing a short sprint race here and there after every kid or, you know, continuing my, my fitness pursuits, but not a lot of racing um, during those years. But what I found is this activity that um, came out <laughs> that would allow me to keep my cycling up uh, without a lot of time on the road. And that was the birth of indoor cycling. Really, when that came on the scene, I had been working in a facility, a sports medicine facility down here as an exercise physiologist, but also helping manage the group exercise program. And I heard about this new activity, this spinning, right, that was coming out. And right away, just because of the time efficient nature of it, I just jumped into that. I didn't really have the qualms about it that a lot of hardcore cyclists did because I was already part of that group exercise world. So to me, hey, it's a bike and it saves me time and I can get paid to do it. Right. <laughs> this sounds good. <laughs> There's always that motivating factor yeah. that helps. <laughs> so yeah, so um, I got very involved in, in, in that actually long before I got on the track. Um, and I guess in the meantime, I, you know what I went to? I'm, it's been a long time thinking back here. Um, Time trailing was the next thing really that I got into um, in triathlon. That seemed to be my strongest leg, even though I was a swimmer in college. So I knew there was something there and was encouraged by some, some guys at the local bike shop, basically, and had a lot of fun with that. Time trailing is a different kind of racing than, you know, road racing. It's, it's uh, well, you just had Kristen Armstrong talking about it. So right. clearly, you know all about it. But a lot of what she said really resonated with me too, just the mental game of time trial. and having to just continually be asking yourself what more there is and continuing to not let up and keeping that, that focus, knowing that in the end, and it's so funny when I heard her talking, cause I thought, Oh my goodness, same kind of mental strategy that I used to use, which is in that moment, in that pain, thinking about how I want to feel when I finish is what keeps me going. And so long story short from time trialing and having some success in that arena, I was actually, um, you know, somewhat recruited to come down to the track. It really wasn't something I was familiar with. There's a track down in San Diego in Balboa Park that is outdoors, 333. It's uh, very rough, nothing like some of these really nice indoor venues, but it's a velodrome nonetheless. And that's basically where I started. And um, yeah, that's what, that's what got me there really was just a friend saying, hey, you know what? I think you'd be a good pursuiter why don't you give this a try? And he told me there's no brakes and there's one gear and the same kind of things that scare everybody <laughs> initially. But I went ahead and gave it a go. And uh, it was just a lot, a lot of fun, a lot, a lot of fun. And it fulfilled that, that part of me that, that does like to test myself and to see what more there is. And it's a very, it has a very addictive quality, I've got to admit. Well, I would say they are right because you've collected world championships, you've broken records and then broken your own records. So yeah, I would agree. You probably have a knack for that. You know, and it's so funny because people, uh, you know, they ask you why. And it really, for me, it's always me competing against me when I'm doing those individual events. In fact, I learned that long ago in triathlon. If I focused on other competitors, it pretty much took energy away for me versus motivated and gained me or gave me energy. So I think of um, time traveling and pursuing that way. It's really 
I guess the quest, the challenge, the attraction is to see what more I can do. And I think especially through the years getting older, that's been a real fun experiment. You know, it's just, it's just fun. It's fun to see what happens when we don't make those conclusions prematurely, but we literally get out there and, and test it out. And I guess back to your point earlier with, with the indoor and bridging that gap, um, there's so much relevance, I think, in that mindset with what we ask people to do indoors in our classes as well. Because we do ask them to get uncomfortable. We do ask them to kind of test their limits at times. Um, and if we can do that in a way that, number one, demonstrates we've been there and done that ourselves, but also a belief in what they have, it builds their confidence. It builds our confidence to test those limits and to trust us enough to do that. I'm really glad you brought that up because there's a similarity between the indoor cycling and track racing and time trials. And it's that drive, no distractions, focusing on just putting out your best. And like you just said, that's what you're asking indoor riders to do. They're sitting on a bike. Uh This bike's not even going anywhere. At least when you're on a track, you're turning left, right? (laughs) But (laughs) Right, right. And and you're feeling the wind and the speed and the G-forces and all that good stuff. So we ask people to sit on (laughs) an indoor bike and, but, but put their mind in the same place and they're frankly suffering, right? And they're just giving it all they got. And so as an indoor instructor, you have to keep them engaged and keep them motivated and teach people in your class how to get into that mindset. People that may not have already had, you know, uh, a long career or history in racing, they're learning this for the first time. So how have you seen your racing career, but then also your education and exercise physiology applied to instructing indoor classes? Oh gosh, so much there. (laughs) There is so much there. Um, Clear my calendar, right? (laughs) (laughs) But I think, I think what I wanted to start by saying is, um, well, it kind of reminds me a little bit, Bryce, people think of the Ironman as as something very hard and very challenging, which indeed it is. And then when I would tell them I was racing it on the track, usually that I would say uh, doing the individual pursuit and the question would be, well, how long is that? two kilometers. (laughs) Well, that's got to be a piece of cake, right? It's only two kilometers. How bad can it be? It only takes you two and a half minutes plus, you know, or something like that. How bad can that really be? And what I learned, and again, over the process of vastly different kinds of training and, and changing everything about the way I had been, you know, racing in an Ironman distance, well, lo and behold, come to discover that that ceiling, that what I thought was a ceiling, it wasn't where I thought it was. And then I pushed it again and you find, you dig a little deeper and you find, oh, it's not there either. And so, like I said, it's almost like an exploration of where that ceiling truly is. And when all said and done, in my mind, that 2K, when I do it the way I really want to do it, one that I'm really satisfied with, one that I really know I left it all out there, it's as hard as an Ironman. No question to me. Wow. Um, No question. It's shorter but I think it's way more painful. And so it's kind of like, so bringing that back to the indoor environment, I think just tracing my history through those kinds of events that are so vastly different, it it gives me a really good understanding of of what they're feeling and what they're dealing with and what they're learning through that process. And I think you have to take it in baby steps. You know, I, I totally own my own um, desire to push that as my own and, 
realize not everyone is going to feel that same way. But I think everybody enjoys finding out they have more than they thought to some degree or another, whether it's just finishing, you know, that three minute interval at a higher average watt than they did on the first two reps, you know, or being able to hold their FTP for that whole 15 minute interval or anything, you know, that we do in these classes that is challenging for them. There's a sense of satisfaction. There's a sense of accomplishment that we can kind of point them to and share with them. And to me, that is what brings people back. That's what's going to leave them feeling like they accomplished something of, of great value, not just physically, but there's a whole psychological element there of accomplishment. So what ways can you help people learn the metrics in which that they can measure their improvement? Um, you know, when you're on a, in a 2K pursuit, right, you're, you're racing really down to tens, hundredths of a second. I mean, those races are so quick and they're so close. Yep. That's something that you can obviously see it's time-based. Mm-hmm. So for somebody who has joined an indoor class, you know, maybe they've been coming for a while, they're starting to feel pretty confident and they want to see how they are measuring up now that they've been doing this for a month, two months. How can you help people learn how to start to track and measure their own performance so that they can, like you said, see their limits and then push those limits? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I have always been, um, I guess, an educator by nature. So I've never shied away from educating my riders about power. Um, you know, coming from the outdoor world of cycling, I was familiar with it when we, it came indoors with stages being company number one that, that did it right. In my opinion, I was jumped on that train right away. Um, and I guess I have a little different view of this than you sometimes hear in that. I don't think it's that complex. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. I should say that. And that educating our writers as to the value of those metrics, um, gosh, it just makes the whole experience for them that much more gratifying. Because think about it. If you were to go in, it, we're quantifying what they're doing. If you were to go in a gym, you would quantify what you were doing when you started a weight training program. If you started on day one doing, you know, bicep curls with 10 pounds, that'd be fine. If you were still doing that a year later, you'd be disappointed. You would not feel like you had made progress. Okay. So that's what we were doing on a bike. We weren't showing our riders any way to measure improvement. Really, there was no way other than just being able to complete the class if they couldn't initially. Right. So by educating about things like cadence and resistance on the bike and how those two combine create the actual workload that they're doing and what that is measured in watts and what is hard, what is sustainable, what is a brand new territory they haven't seen before that maybe one day they hit on a 30 second interval. These are the kinds of things that make them appreciate the progress that's being had over the weeks of consistent training that we couldn't show them before. So for someone like me, that's always been a motivator. Um, is seeing improvement. And I think for most of us, I don't think we come to class on a regular basis expecting to stay the same. At least that's not our hope. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, I, I, with all my classes, we test FTP and uh, we do that quarterly. I try not to overdo it on that because, um, you know, life happens and things do get in the way of people being able to come consistently. But if I get it four times a year, every three months or so, 
Um, most people will get it in at least two to three times and adjust their zones accordingly. And we've really talked extensively about the fact that you can't be at your highest high all the time. And just like my racing season, I expect for my fitness to wax and wane. It never completely goes away, but it's not going to be at its peak year round. And the same is true, I think, sometimes with our indoor classes. And there are things that naturally shift our emphasis away from exercise at certain times of the year, or maybe we get outside more in the summer, maybe during the holidays, we, we slow down. And that these benchmarks are simply markers of where they are at a given point in the year so that we can train appropriately, we can train effectively, we can create zones that are appropriate to their current fitness status. And uh, so you kind of said it there and we, we have people from all both ends of the spectrum, which is a great thing about the show. Can you explain FTP quickly and in layman's terms for people who might not fully understand why it's important? Sure, sure. So FTP or functional threshold power is, um, I guess, sort of a surrogate for what we used to measure in the lab when I worked in exercise physiology lab, and that is of lactate threshold of that break point where the work that we are doing goes from sustainable, really hard, but sustainable to unsustainable. That, that threshold is what we're trying to identify based on the power output of the individual. And that is going to vary or change not only amongst individuals based on body weight and state of training, but in a given individual at different times of the year. But once we identify that benchmark, we can then use a zone system that makes sense. You know, we tried so long to use things just like heart rate and RPE, and none of them quite did the trick the way we really wanted to. Now that we have power and we can test functional threshold power, we can create these zones with a lot more confidence that we're actually um, delivering an exercise dose that's going to create the stimulus or adaptation we're after. And power is one of those metrics that's really helped correct some misconceptions that have come up from indoor cycling. One of those being, I'm new to indoor cycling and I feel like if I just pedal really, really fast, if my cadence is really high, that means I'm going really fast, right? And that's not necessarily true. Absolutely. I think, you know, high leg speed, as we all know, can be done against a high resistance and it's brutally hard and not sustainable for longer than a few seconds, or we can do it against no resistance and there's really nothing to it, right? It will elevate our heart rate because of the quickness of the speed of movement, but the actual energy we're expending, and that's what oxygen consumption is determined by, is not really all that much. And so the adaptation that occurs from that is unfortunately not, not too great. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's the difference, right, between riding your bike outdoors, you just, you see your speed of movement. <laughs> and if you were doing that outdoors, especially with a group of other riders, you'd learn pretty quickly, it just was inefficient, and it wasn't getting you down the road at the speed you needed to, you'd make changes, right, in your technique, in your gearing, uh, to keep up with those other riders, or to make um, better speed down the road. And that is, or it was, I should say, the challenge indoors is not being able to see how the movement you're creating was propelling you forward because you're not, Um, which is why the power meter has changed that. And really, I think 
open the eyes of, of so many people that do ride indoors to a whole new experience. And, and I tell you, I think they're getting results they never did before too, because of that power meter. Well, and, and another great thing about indoor riding is you don't have to worry about falling off the back of the group, right? Everybody's in the same room and all working together. But that kind of led to another false idea that, well, if I see my numbers aren't just as high as the next person's numbers, then I'm obviously not working hard enough and I'm not on par with the group. And that's not true either. No, it's definitely not. And, you know, power is personal, right? Uh, There's a lot of reasons why we don't teach um, to an absolute number of watts. It's relative to the individual. And it's just not something, it's similar to telling everyone in the group they should be at the same heart rate. You know, we wouldn't do that. We know that that varies with the individual. And it's not just based on fitness. There are other factors that contribute to that. Um, body size and weight being, being one of them. So being able to have a benchmark number like functional threshold power for each rider in the class, pretty much what you're doing with that is now you're leveling the playing field. Everyone is going to be asked to work at the same relative effort the same percentage of that FTP. So it's relatively to their own capacity. It's the same workload for everyone in there, whether they're very unfit or whether they're an elite cyclist. Um, there's a difference, of course, in those individuals and perhaps their, their psychology and their mental toughness and what they're willing to do and what they're willing to tolerate. But in terms of the actual workload we're asking, that's the beauty of power. So right now we're in a really interesting time in that I, th- I would argue more people than ever are riding their bikes indoor and they're riding more often. Mm. And what I see that leading to, and, and really from my own personal experience, is overtraining. Mm-hmm. While we love that everyone's riding, there tends to be this idea that if I'm going to throw my leg over my bike... I need to do a really hard workout because it's got to count. If I'm going to do it today, it needs to count and I need to leave that sweat puddle on the floor (laughs) and just really bury myself. And you start to do that, you know, doing that once, twice a week, that's great. That's awesome. That's how you raise that FTP. That's how you get stronger. But you start doing that every day and it really wears on you. And I I see this trend of, of people who might not fully understand that and here a month down the road might start really <laughs> suffering the consequences of just fatigue. Yeah. Yeah. Fatigue, if not injury, right? Mm-hmm. No, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, I'm, I'm guilty of that or have been at different times in my life as well. Just the, the more is better mindset, right? So if, if hard is good, then harder is better. And it can be a, a misleading kind of idea. Um, and a lot of people are riding indoors and they have a little more time and they're thinking, I can make something good out of this quarantine situation by, by really upping my fitness. But the reality is, you know, and we learned, back in the early days of triathlon, trust me, it was always more is better, more is better. There was no real measurement systems, no heart rate monitors, no power meters. It was all just your training log and how many miles you'd logged <laughs> and more was always better. And probably a bit of Russian roulette on race day, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you don't know if you're going to be kind of in form as we call it now or not. Absolutely. It was a lot more hit and miss. You know, the whole concept of the taper was 
pretty new in that sport at the time. So um, yeah, it was a lot of hit, hit and miss. And we have a lot more information now. And we can certainly use that to our advantage, but we have to understand the body's need to recover. And truly those hard, hard workouts, you know, what the research shows is, is two a week is pretty optimal. And that doesn't mean we're not necessarily, you know, riding and training more than that, but those are really high intensity efforts that you really want to be of high quality. If you want to get the benefit from those, your body needs time to recover, to absorb that stress that you've placed on it and adapt in a way that makes it stronger versus, as you say, just overtrained or burned out or injured or, or failure to adapt. And a recovery day doesn't always have to mean off the bike. No. Well, off the bike is great and cross training is great, doing other things. Sometimes people want to still ride. So what's something that people can do to still get a recovery day, let their body recuperate, but still pedal? Well, I love my recovery days now <laughs> because I know, <laughs> I know that I can just enjoy myself, you know, whether it's indoors or out. I, I just that, that low level, you know, zone two kind of ride where I'm keeping it really comfortable. I'm able to take in my surroundings and enjoy the beauty around me. I have no real performance goals, which can kind of be stressful. Um, but I'm just, I'm just building that aerobic base. I'm just taking my time at a pace that I can still be comfortable at, still talk at if I want to, be social. If it's you know outdoors or if it's on the indoor bike, I could potentially you know, be doing something else at the same time. Um, I guess after a lot of the, the kind of harder training that I've done, I relish those days now. <laughs> it's kind of nice to remember that it's fun to ride a bike. It's not always painful. <laughs> this isn't an expert opinion, but my rule is that on recovery day, if, uh, if you ride more than an hour, there has to be a coffee stop. There you go. <laughs> I, I like it. <laughs> I think that's a good rule. And there's no limit to how many. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you um, obviously have uh, accomplished a lot, both on the track and, and in triathlon, but now you have a lot of involvement in a really cool organization called the Challenged Athletes Foundation. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and how you're involved? Yeah, absolutely. You know, Challenged Athletes Foundation is an organization that's based here in San Diego, but it's actually world worldwide. And it really started, oh gosh, I think it's been back in the early 1990s with a triathlete, uh, Jim McLaren, who was injured in a motorcycle crash and had his leg amputated and went on to, to do Ironman and lots of amazing athletic accomplishments with um, you know, a prosthetic leg. And then tragically was in another accident and became a quadriplegic. And so a group of people here in San Diego, um, small group of people got together to try to raise some funds to help him by a van that he could, um, that was adaptive for his um, disabilities that he could get around. And uh, so they put on a little triathlon here in La Jolla. And that event raised more than enough money for the van and they decided to do it the next year. And it really was just kind of a grassroots thing. And it got bigger and they raised more money and they realized that there's a lot of people out there like Jim who really due to their disability, um, due to whatever unfortunate events life had, you know, brought them, were not able to participate in sport or activity just for their own health and wellness um, due to the financial requirements for things like prosthetic limbs, um, for race entries, for opportunities to compete if that's what they wanted to do. 
So it's a really cool organization. And since that time, um, like I said, they've, they've grown exponentially. I don't know how many millions of dollars they have raised over these years, 25 some years for challenged athletes of all, all levels, um, from children born with birth defects who just want to participate in elementary school physical education classes with their friends to, uh, you know, recreational or development type athletes, age groupers, to elite and Paralympians. Um, so they really are just doing such a wonderful job um, through the grants to these athletes of changing the face of adaptive sport. That's really great. Thank you so much for everything that you do with that organization. Can you tell us how people can get involved if they want to contribute? There are some very cool opportunities to be involved. Um, if this is something that, you know, if anyone listening needs a goal, goals are always great, right? They motivate us. And there are events that Challenge Athletes Foundation puts on that are wonderful goals for you as an individual um, that also contribute towards this cause. And one is their, their million dollar challenge in the fall where riders go from San Francisco to San Diego and, you know, riding anywhere from about 80 to 120, 25, maybe longest day um, down the coast through the most, some of the most beautiful scenery you've ever seen. And it's just an amazing, wonderful event. And we get to ride side by side with a lot of the Paralympians and challenge athletes themselves. So it's pretty cool. I encourage anybody out there who has an interest in seeing California to to do it that way. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to do it. Well, Lenita, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for um, sharing your insight on uh, both indoor and outdoor cycling and how the two are crossing over. We appreciate you joining. You're absolutely welcome, Bryce. It's been a pleasure. If you're interested in getting involved with Challenged Athletes Foundation, you can find out more at challengedathletes.org. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe and hear more every Friday. We're off to a great start and you won't want to miss the coming episodes. Be sure you're following both Stages Indoor Cycling and Stages Cycling to get tons of great content about riding bikes. Thanks for listening. I'm Bryce Hansen and this is Bridge the Gap. Bridge the Gap.